What is up, everybody? Welcome to NFTs in Arena. You're with your host, Michael Savides. And today we have a very special guest by the name of Eric Yalen, who is based here in the United States. And Eric, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, good, good to, to have you on the podcast. Nice to be here, Mike. Yeah, thank you for your time. So just jumping straight into it. So for those of you that don't know who Eric is, he so he, in my opinion and in my words, he's a seasoned veteran when it comes to business and helping companies existing as well as new companies achieve their market leadership with traditional, unique and advanced strategies uh, with a host of, year, um, host of industry experiences and um, what um, Eric is currently uh, working on now, he's the owner of Cogni Logic FX, and we'll jump into that, what that is and what he's doing, but mainly focused around business development, brand strategy, and helping influencers and businesses generate exponential growth and revenues by leveraging blockchain technology, and looking at NFTs, DeFi, growth hacking, and the likes, all within the crypto space, as well as in Web3. And the, the, the next thing that I really want to explore is also this whole idea that Eric has obviously constructed an idea, idea, like ideating and essentially creating called Megafluence, which is essentially this this convergence and this dovetailing of the various metaverses that will eventually and are being developed now and materialized in the future. So, Eric, the first thing that I wanted to jump into is obviously um, Cognilogic FX. Um, I, I've spoken to you behind the scenes and I'd love for you just to take us through what it is, why are you doing this and the kind of work that you're doing. Well, you know, I've been on this entrepreneurial journey for a long, long time. I actually started all the way back in high school, uh, which was in the late seventies. And I was uh, in junior achievements. And in those days, you would actually start your own company, you'd elect officers, you'd sell stock, you'd create a product. So I started very, very early on that. Uh, But in everything that I've done along the way, I've always done things, I think, a little bit differently than a lot of the people around me. A lot of people I always saw making a lot of emotional decisions. Uh, They would jump into things maybe a little bit too quick, and I've not necessarily been that way. It's not like I'm slow and methodical, but I use my cognitive thinking abilities. I come up with logical solutions, and the end result, more often than not, nothing's 100%, but more often than not, it has positive effects. So Cognologic effects is a a mashup of those words, cognitive, logical, and effects. Fantastic. And the work that you're doing and the companies that you are helping, um, I know we, you've told me about some of the, the, the some of the startups that you're helping advise, and one of them was the this affiliate um, marketing or this, but all along the blockchain. I would love for you to um, obviously at that project. I, I don't know if you are allowed to talk about it. You're more than welcome to, and just the work that you're doing with the startup. Well. Uh... Before I jump into that, you know, you know, technology has always been an important part of my life. I actually bought my first computer in 1984, uh, and I saw the value of computers way back then. And in fact, in my first job out of college, uh, among 40 peers, I was the only one that was computerized, and that was for seven long years. And so I always saw the advantages of it. So I've always been a bit on the leading edge on on those things. Uh, I en- eventually, I ended up having my own software company, 
We developed the first Windows-based solution for membership-based clubs and high-end corporate fitness centers, had a lot of Fortune 100 companies as clients. Uh, and then I decided I really, I kind of I grew tired of technology and, and the clients, and so I went in back into uh, sports and entertainment. So I did that until 2014, and then unfortunately I got sick and stopped working completely, and now I'm kind of coming back. But to get to where you wanted to go on this, um, one of the things that intrigued me was this whole thing on blockchain. It was definitely as revolutionary as just the PC. Uh, and, you know, we've seen some major things in the last 30, 40 years that have been absolutely uh, disruptive. And obviously, blockchain technology is one of them. Uh, and I didn't actually get into it that early. I'm actually kind of in, in a way, uh, even though I'm an early person in the bigger scope of things, I'm still kind of late because I didn't get into it until around uh, the beginning of 2020. Yeah, um, that, is, that, that, is, that is pretty new new into the industry because, I mean, obviously the, the ideation of blockchain and also cryptocurrency has been around for a while. But I do think that it's super fascinating to see someone where you obviously, I mean, you got into technology very early on, obviously well ahead of my time. And it's interesting to see that your your passion for that kind of subsided and now you're getting back into that after um, the, the, the obstacles that you had faced. So now that you've obviously got into it over the last few years, I mean, it's, it's really fascinating to see. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just thought it was really cool to see that you've come back into this new space. Well, and, and along the way, you know, how did I get into blockchain and crypto? Well, you know, just like everybody else, I started investing in crypto. But then I started talking to people and getting to know uh some different things that were going on. And and I don't exactly remember how the connection was made, but I, I met some, uh, a startup in, uh, in California that was doing some very interesting things in a variety of different areas in the blockchain space. And I like their philosophies a lot. And, you know, it's very important, I think, to be aligned with your own value system. And Definitely their values and my values were very similar. So some of the things that they were working on were very traditional, uh, you know, metaverse type projects, uh, you know, 3D virtual reality type things. But they had gone a little, uh, a couple steps further. They were working in some augmented reality things, such as uh, developing a, a driving app that could use the AR glasses and do a heads up display. Uh, developing an air an air car uh, they're working on right now um, so that you don't have to worry about traveling on the roads. Uh, they developed a blockchain, and their concept on the blockchain is very futuristic because the world isn't really ready for it yet. Um, it It's the fact that right now in the metaverses, everything is very isolated. You know, you can do something in one metaverse, but the assets that you get deal with in one metaverse can't be easily transferred. In fact, they can't really be transferred at all. You'd have to sell assets in one to buy assets in another. And, you know, yeah. the whole idea is, especially when you think about something like in the fashion world, so people like to show off what they own. So that's the idea of why is Nike so involved with 
the whole NFT and metaverse space? Well, it's because you want to maybe buy that custom pair of Nike uh, digital shoes, but you want to wear them on your augmented virtual reality self. And then you want to go to a particular metaverse and show it off to everybody. But then you, if you grow tired, you want to go and do something else, just like we all do. We go bar yeah. hopping, as an example. Well, <laughs> how can you go bar hopping in your Nike shoes from metaverse to metaverse to metaverse? Well, right now you can't. There's no interoperability. So one of the problems that they found was what they were trying to address was the fact that for that type of instantaneous capability to go from metaverse to metaverse, uh, the current consensus models are just way too slow. Uh, proof of work is way too expensive. Proof of stake is great, but it's still slower. And how do you make it literally milliseconds? And, Real time. And, and there's some, there's going to be some efforts in that. So they've developed their own consensus model called proof of trust. And now they're starting to, you know, find developers who are interested in building on top of that proof of trust consensus model. Um, then they're doing things like uh, it built into that particular blockchain is the capability of managing third party sales. So right now, as we all know, if I if you want to create a metaverse or an NFT, I can go through a centralized exchange like an OpenSea. But what I can't do is find somebody else to sell it for me and then pay them a commission. There's no tracking mechanisms. So yeah. in the space that exists out there, there's places like ClickBank, which are an affiliate marketplace. And what does what do they sell? They sell digital products and physical products. But what about DeFi products? So one of the problems that we definitely see in the space right now is the fact that there's a lot of phenomenal products that we'll never see because they don't have the right promoters. Versus there's a lot of garbage out there right now that find the right promoters and they get traction. And so yeah. the, the developers, they make a lot of money off of a lot of crap, but they hurt a lot of people in the long run. So the idea is, and by the way, that can happen. It doesn't matter. It's not just this space that happens with physical products and digital products yeah, too. Regardless of, regardless of whatever industry. Uh, right. So it's you, not, it's not yeah. an indictment of the space. It's the fact that again, it takes promotion. It takes marketing. It takes effort and you can't do it all yourself, especially, you know, in this space, it's not like we have, you know, not everyone is, is, uh, you know, putting 20, $30 billion into metaverses or, or, you know, like Meta or Nike or whatever, most of these companies are small startups. So how do they get the word out? How do they promote? Well, the idea would be affiliate marketing because then you have tens of thousands of people across the globe interested maybe in selling your product or service and earning a commission. But there's no real way to track it right now for the DeFi space. So this blockchain can do that as well. So that's kind of, those are some of the things that I thought were interesting, and we get involved with some other project projects as well. But that's the one that between that and dealing with the NFTs and my philosophy on NFTs, this particular group of guys we had alignment with, and they really didn't have any marketing people, and so I kind of created a relationship. 
And you know, it's so funny that you bring this up and this whole merging of these metaverses and jumping between the different um, avatar worlds, as some would say, and wearing this apparel that you purchased from a brand like Nike. And I think uh, when we had initially um, spoken to each other before this, we had touched on the whole um, uh, movement of Nike actually generating close to $200 million in NFTs. And I actually had a a guest on just um, prior to having you on here, by a lady by the name of Tally Friedman. She works for NFT Basel. And what NFT Basel effectively is, is this, this, this community and this event-like culture where they, they, they demonstrate in-person and digital ways of NFTs. So like they have NFT Art Basel in Miami in November and they have various other events. And um, we were speaking about how people are leveraging this technology to even attend weddings now. Like obviously, COVID had propelled the, this this innovation of technology. I do believe and allowing people to attend events virtually. But she actually had hosted a friend's wedding in the metaverse, and then it allowed people from all around the world to take part in that. And now I'm starting to see how actually advanced the space is already. I don't think people actually understand, but there is obviously a lot of room to make, and I'm sure you can attest to that. And like obviously, when it comes to creating organisations and creating companies within this. There's a lot of technological facets that come part of this. And you were talking to me about brand uh, brand identity management and brand identity um, protection. And it's something that I had not really um, understood before. And I would love for you to maybe take us through how you see it and where you see it in this being applied and the, the, the just the general necessity of, of brand identity protection and management. Well, so a long time ago, I kind of created my own concept regarding branding because I think most people don't really understand what branding is. A lot of people will say, hey, I got this great brand, and what they show me is a logo. And a logo isn't a brand. It's just a graphic representation of a brand. Just like, you know, unless you're an artist, uh, the digital image that, most people associate with NFTs is not what the NFT is all about. It's just a graphic, ideally, it's just a graphic representation of what the NFT is all about. So in creating a brand, uh, this life cycle, I think it, it's very much like uh, anyone who go, it understands marketing, they've seen things like the product life cycle or the diffusion of innovation life cycle, and it's a standard bell curve. And this isn't exactly a bell curve. It's more of a, a rising flow because you can grow a, a brand and eventually it does reach its pinnacle. So, you know, what does that entail? Well, I say that there's basically six legs to that. First, you have to claim what that brand is so you can ensure your personal or business identity has some consistency and identification. You have to define what that means. You have to establish guidelines. And sometimes it's going to be things that are very graphic, like colors and fonts and and things like that. But it's also mission and vision and values and what you stand for. And, you know, at its core, what a brand is, is your promise to your stakeholders. And those stakeholders are going to be your employees, your customers, your prospects, your shareholders, uh, Anybody that you have interaction with, they're the people that you have a promise to, and either you deliver on it or you don't. So then once you get all that taken care of, then you have to promote it, and you have to obviously use, to the best of your ability, market intelligence uh, 
and creating all of your different types of campaigns and exposure to promote yourself. Then you have to enhance it. And how do you enhance it? Well, you get what's called social proof. So you get people who give you testimonials and say, hey, this is great, or, or I had this great experience, or, you know, I had this problem, and they responded, and they took care of it. They lived up to their promise. So that's important as part of that brand life cycle. If, by the way, if, if you promise something and then you don't live up to it, you're going to hurt your brand because there's going to be people nowadays that are going to talk about it, and it's going to be prevalent, and it's going to be for every, everyone to see. Then there's another thing that you need to do is you have to defend your brand. And that's because in this day and age, we hear it all the time. We hear about identity theft. Well, it's not just about stealing personal identities anymore. It's also very much about stealing business identities. So you have to understand the different things that you need to do to protect that. And a lot of that is also, by the way, since we're in the, in the technology sector, it's the things that we do behind the scenes to protect our data from hackers and, and mm. things like that. And that's obviously very important for small business. And, and, and then it's just understanding what you need to do to comply with the laws and regulations. So in the protecting of, you know, your customers and their personal identifiable information and all of that. So those are the aspects of the brand identity life cycle. And I think most people, they just don't think about all of those things. Now, where it's important with NFTs, and I, th I think we had this discussion uh, the other day, is that a lot of NFTs, they don't think about branding in their implementation. They go and because it's so, they're so early in it, they say, hey, let's get into the space so that we can be a pioneer and a leader in it. But then they don't think about how it, it can be coordinated or can impact the overall brand that the company has been trying to establish. And along yeah. the way, what they do is they get perceived as doing a money grab. Uh, a great example of that, quite frankly, is in uh, a lot of people in sports and entertainment. Um, I think uh, if you actually look at the NASCAR community, um, some of the biggest players, they, they formed uh, uh, a consortium to promote NASCAR but they missed the boat completely. And then you go in the Twitterverse and all of the NASCAR fans are just slamming these people left and right. What, because what, what, what they is it that they did? What, what did they that? actually do? What, what, did, what did they actually do that you feel like agitated and uh, the fans, first of all, and came under? Why did they come under so much scrutiny? Uh, because basically what they created was a digital, a quote unquote digital image collectible. And a lot of people, especially in that particular community, are not necessarily uh, going to perceive that to be that much of a value. And what the community of NASCAR fans is thinking is relationships. They're seeking that community. And that's missing what the whole point of NFTs, what, where the value is, and that's in the utility. It's creating that smart contract. It's having it uh, an NFT represent tangible goods, physical goods, digital goods, tickets to events, special opportunities. You can so do so much to build a community, and they didn't give that any thought. And you know how important that, that actually is? I mean, we see it in, not only in NASCAR. I mean, obviously, you brought this to my attention, but we see it in many sports where the brands and the, the organizations in which are obviously running 
these teams are so disengaged with the fans and actually realizing what the fans want. Because like I think you you make a good point there. They probably didn't read the room and actually understand that maybe their demographic of or their fans it's obviously a, somewhat of a niche. He's not as tech savvy and would prefer something more in-person and tangible. And it's funny because when I was speaking to Talia about it, she was also saying that even though the artists these, these, that they would create physical canvases now, they're trying to also get ways in which to authenticate their artwork by utilizing NFCs, these non-fungible, um, these chips, obviously to validate that. And now they're almost um, coagulating those, the digital asset and the physical asset. And what that is doing is it's creating the utility beyond the sale of the first digital collectible because now the physical asset, there's, there's, there's more tangible meaning to it. And I think it can be applied to sports. And obviously you have a lot of experience in sports. So like my, my question to you would be is with um, NFTs now and the whole the, the blockchain technology propelling, where do you see the, the best suited place for NFTs in sports? Well, so... As as you're well aware, the, there was a big change in the United States with the NCAA and changing the rules regarding what amateur athletes can do to take advantage of their success. And they can obviously now monetize their name, image, and likeness. So the question is, you know, let's face it, 99% of these athletes, once college is over, they're done as yeah. a as – a, as a, a thought, maybe a thought leader in their space because they're just not, they're not going to be part of that environment. So do they create an NFT now uh, to just generate income off of their current name, image, and likeness, or do they think about it for their post-collegiate career? And in doing that, what they really should be doing is using an NFT as a vehicle to create an entire business. So the people that want to make this long-term and actually have that NFT, you know, a, a, a college athlete can create an NFT today. Somebody's going to go and buy it and, 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 and do something with it. But is it really an investment? Well, the likelihood is 10 years from now, that NFT is going to be worthless. No one's going to mm -hmm. care about it anymore. So yeah. how do you make sure that the NFT that you provide today has value tomorrow? The only way you can do that is to build a brand for yourself and every it doesn't matter what sport you're in it doesn't matter if it's a major sport or a minor sport there's going to be uh, an audience for you in your talents and abilities so you can build a business around it now maybe it's you're not going to build the business around your athletic career maybe it's going to be about your academic career ultimately because you're going to get into business or politics or whatever it is yeah. Well, if you think about that now, you can still build the NFT correctly now. And it's about building a brand and building that business. And the NFT is just a means to promote it and generate money off of it. Yeah, I think that is an interesting take on it because you're quite right. And I'm also of the same opinion that high-end athletes, 99% of them actually don't make it to where they actually want to go because it's incredibly competitive as well as um, you have to be very talented amongst or mixed with hard work. And I can definitely see the value in that. And I, I find it interesting that even though an athlete now, amateur athlete or college athlete that may or may not have potential to be, to make it to the big leagues will create an NFT. And like you're saying, in the future, what will the value of that NFT be? 
But I think it comes down to the way in, uh, in which the athlete builds their brand, like you say, and what they because even though an athlete may not become a professional athlete, he may go on to do something very reputable. And now that NFT in which they've created at such a young age will still hold value, but just in a different... Uh, I think I always like to say the beauty is the eye of the beholder. So whoever sees value in that NFT in the future will obviously be very relevant to that. I, I, do, I do see um, a lot of um, athletes trying to take advantage of the NIL now, like you quite said, and obviously trying to monetize their name, image, and likeness. Yesterday, I actually went to the USC versus Rice game um, at the Coliseum. It was a quite interesting game to see. And you kind of think to yourself, out of all these athletes that are on the field right now, which one of them would actually, which one of the few would actually make, make it to the, the NFL, for example? And what are they doing now to actually monetize their, their brand, their existing brand for the future state of wherever they're going to end up? I mean, I know you also have a lot of experience working with golfers. And I think... Um, there's something that is a space that is, I think, a lot more different because it is an individual sport. And I think the reliance and the, on the branding of that particular athlete is heavily um, reliant on that athlete to, to push that agenda. Like, do you see that there, there will be a difference in NFTs for athletes that are competing in the team level compared to individual sports like golf or tennis? I think there's good... It- the difference is only going to be that a sport like golf or tennis or basketball um, are very much participatory sports that a lot of people engage in on a regular basis. Even minor sports like bowling, as an example, it's a participatory sport and people can do uh, engage in that throughout their entire life. So there is potential longevity because once you've achieved some level of success, you can capitalize on that with other people that like to participate in that in that sport. Now, something like uh, football, uh, American football, you know, if you're a lineman, um, it's not like there's a whole bunch of participation, participation going on uh, mm. down there. However, that doesn't mean that there's still not opportunities to develop a brand because there's certain things that you can do. Again, it really depends on the individual. So I can't give to any specifics because there are no specifics. It really has to be very much related and ingrained with what that person is, what they stand for, and the other things outside of just football. But that again, they can develop a, 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 a business around where their success has been. Uh, it's just a matter of doing it. Obviously, golf is easy because it's something that should be easy because if you get to that professional rank or even if you're a top amateur, people want to play with you. They want to go out and, and play golf. So now there's opportunities. Um, they want to learn from you. They want to do all sorts of different things. And the question is how many of the golfers that are out there, and we're talking about millions of golfers, um, would understand how they could monetize their talents uh, and utilize this new technology. And by the way, one of the other things that we're working on right now in the golf space is we're actually building out um, uh, some augmented reality training apps that will take advantage of all of the technology that's there, but bring it down to a much a more affordable price level. Most of the products that are out there are in the tens and twenties and thirty thousand dollar range. We want to bring it down to the hundred 
the $500 range probably. It might be a little bit more, obviously, because it's still going to require things like VR headsets. But uh, 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 we're definitely looking at that because, again, it's just the volume of people that are out there that want to participate in it. Yeah, and I mean, I think with any technology, I mean, you obviously having the, one of the first PCs, you must have been incredibly expensive at that time. And naturally now the prices would have come down with the advent of innovation and engineering. And I think that's a, that's, that's a good point to now maybe segue into um, the book that you, you're currently trying to author and write, which is um, Megafluence. And it's something we touched on at the beginning of the, of the podcast, but um the way you explained it to me and the way I understood it was really fascinating to see how you're already thinking of how these worlds are all going to come together and you're actually trying to create a book around it. Can you just like explain to myself and to the audience as to what draws your inspiration to writing a book of this and where do you actually want to take this book? So I've created this concept called the Megafluence Method. So Megafluence, again, is a mashup of words. It's mega and influence. But when I say mega, most people just think of big, huge. But it's really not just that because I'm taking it to the next level, which is the megaverse. And the concept of a megaverse is it's a collection of metaverses, and that's where we get into the whole interoperability. So the idea behind the megafluence method is how do you become a market leader and dominate your niche in our current Web 2.0 world, but also be prepared for a decentralized Web 3.0 economy. Now, most of the people that I deal with on a daily basis, they want, they say, oh, I want to get into NFTs. And I just basically say, no, you're just not ready for it. You're trying to jump into, you want to jump into the deep end of the pool before you filled the pool with any water. Yeah. <laughs> and. So what they what they the problem is that their core business hasn't done what's necessary to be a mega influencer. So there's basically four elements in any business that they need to to deal with to dominate or become a market leader. One is the core foundational pieces, they have to have a cohesive brand. The second thing is within a business, they have to have systems, methods, processes something that defines how they do things on a day-to-day -day basis so it's easy, easily duplicatable, depending on as they grow. Obviously, when you bring in new people, you need to have an easy way to get them up to speed. The third thing, the third leg of it, is knowing who your customer is and knowing how to communicate in a way that your customer wants to hear that message or in a way that will resonate with that customer. And again, a lot of people, they just fail in that. They want to talk about themselves when what they really need to do is they need to talk about how they can solve that customer's problem. Because that's ultimately what marketing is all about. It's coming up with solutions to solve people's problems. So those are the three most important legs in businesses that are manual and method, you know, pre-internet days. Those yeah. are the core foundations of any business. Now, it's if you want to grow and scale, you got to have that last leg, and that's technology and automation. And that's when we can start getting into more uh, involved things like metaverses and NFTs. But it can be just simple automation, and it's amazing how many people fail in that regard. So it's taking all of those pieces together and looking at the complete history of influence and how it's developed through the years, why blockchain has become so important 
which, by the way, a lot of it has to do with the devolution of trust. Nowadays, and there's uh, the Edelman Trust Barometer. It's a company that has done a global uh, research project on, on how people feel over the last 20-some years. And every year they see that all of these ways that, you know, that, well, all relationships, we just lack trust anymore. And so what do we have to do to bring that back? Well, the nice thing about the blockchain is it's public, it's transparent, it's authentic, it's immutable, and so it can help build that trust. Obviously, it still requires the right players and it requires the right value systems, but that's one of the reasons why blockchain, I think, is so exciting. So we try to take everyone on that complete journey. You know, you said something there that like, it really resonates with me based on a video that I had watched yesterday. It was of Steve Jobs when he had returned to Apple, I think, in 1997. And I, I don't know when this, this event was, but like he always used to obviously talk in front of audiences and obviously communicate his vision and what he wants to do. And at that time when he had come to Apple, you all know more than me, the, the company was really struggling. I think it was just after the acquisition of Next. That, um, that brought him back in. And he was kind of having questions coming from the audience and someone came on, I wouldn't say aggressively, but they came in almost to, to find a way to ridicule him and question him. And they were kind of questioning the technology and what he's actually going to bring different now the second time around because obviously the way it ended the first time wasn't very, uh, was, wasn't very good for the organization. And he kind of just said, and he broke it down quite simply, and he, he was quite honest and humble in his, in his response with regards. He didn't really know the answer, but he kind of just said, the, the best way to look at it is understanding the customer, what the customer wants, and back engineering it now to design the technology that can actually solve it. It's kind of touching what you're talking about now. And he just said in like a few simple lines, and I was like, if that doesn't get the message across as to how businesses become successful, is understanding the customer and not designing the technology and assuming that the customer would want that. And it's funny because one of my first technology startups that I had done, we kind of did that, was a parking technology um, software. And we initially created a solution that we thought people wanted. And after going live into the market, we realized that there is a problem to be solved, but the solution which we had created needed to be iterated and actually changed to actually adhere to what customers wanted. And it still remains that whatever industry, whatever technology you're doing, that should be at the heart of creating your business and your product. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and by the way, one of the things that Apple has done is they, they've really been the leaders in dealing with this issue on trust. They, the the customer yeah. said, we want more privacy. We want to be in control of our, our data and we don't want to have it out there. And so who's leading all of these innovations that have totally upended digital marketing? It's Apple. Yeah. And it, it, they have, even though they don't have a dominant market share overall, once they introduced the iPhone, that's where they really started dominating things. And now that the technology is such that we have more power in that stupid little phone than we had in PCs in the 80s and even the early 90s, um, it became that that area where they could really capitalize on dealing with what the customer wanted, and that was privacy and building up that trust again. And so that's exactly what they're doing now. They're 
focusing on what the customer wants and building products or solutions to address that problem. Yeah, I think Apple is a prime example of an organization that is just continuously adapting to the times and listening to what people want. In. Although they're creating trends, I mean, Steve Jobs was caught saying that people, like what I think it was the iPod, people didn't know what they wanted until he, they actually presented it to them, which is obviously kind of interesting. You can't do that all the time, but obviously he was an extraordinary uh, individual that had a vision like no other. So Eric, we, we are coming to the end of the podcast, but there, there is one last thing that I wanted to ask you. So obviously now, and I'd love to have you back on if you, if you were willing to do that. And I do know that we would potentially be trying to find ways in which we can collaborate with sports finder. But any, anything that you think that the audience should be looking at, anything now, particularly with, for example, the merge of Ethereum happening, like what is something that you're most excited about or most concerned about within the Web3 space? Well, I just think that when people, I'm not talking about the people who are in the industry, because I think the people in the industry generally understand it. The question is, do they approach it or they, do, they, do they capitalize on what they understand? When it comes to NFTs, I think that the focus has to get away from creating 10,000 item collections of digital images and focus more on utility. Um, I think the name of the game going forward is going to be utility, utility, utility. Uh, and I think that what makes Ethereum itself uh, a great blockchain is when you think about it, it really is the utilitarian uh, crypto that's out there. Uh, it, you know, it, it's the underlying uh, blockchain for the entire legacy financial industry, as an example. So, uh, and obviously it's pretty much dominating the NFT space. So think about the utility, build a brand based on that utility um, and, and use that to enhance the value and make sure that whatever you're creating has long lasting presence and isn't out there just to make a quick buck. Couldn't have been a little better. So again, thank you so much. Everyone that's listening, everyone that's watching, Please like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as all of our socials. I will put Eric's information in the description in the YouTube channel. Please um, do reach out if you have any questions or if you want to get contacted. Eric, he's working on some very cool things, as we've quite rightly mentioned on the podcast. Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your insights and helping us actually educate our audience because there is people that are trying to get into this space and trying to learn about it. And I think the best way to do it is just to share information and have our opinions um, communicated on platforms like this. Well, I appreciate the time, Mike. And I think that some of the things that you uh, are doing with the Sports Find are phenomenal as well. Thank you so much. And everyone take care. Look forward to the next one.